That's what parables do. For me, parables are different from mythology because parables disrupt our understanding of who's in and who's out, who's right or who's wrong, who's good or who's bad. Uh, one thing you'll know is C.S. Lewis had an argument. Was Jesus a liar, a lunatic or a lord? And he says, well, he wasn't a liar, which means he wasn't unethical. He wasn't mad, which means he wasn't unwise. So therefore, maybe he was lord. But actually, I think a closer reading of the Bible you have to argue that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, and a lord, in the sense of the liar is the ethical sense. Jesus comes across profoundly unethical from our perspective, always throwing out who we think is bad, aren't bad, who we think are good, aren't good, always messing up our ethics. And, and that's actually what makes Jesus so interesting. And parables are like that. They expose the, the chaos and craziness of the world to us in a way that's productive. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Peter Rollins. Pete is a philosopher, theologian, author, and incendiary speaker who's the progenitor of a school of thought called Pyrotheology. This conversation was recorded last year as Pete was up with us at the Way Collective in Santa Barbara for a Pints and Parables event. In this episode, Pete and I discuss how he understands the notion of the absurd in Pyrotheology, the place for parable, liturgy, and transformance art in communities, and the evolution of his work over his career. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Peter Rons, welcome, hey. Pete. How's it going? Good to be here. What's up? Pete has also brought the gloom with him today uh, to Santa Barbara. It's a cloudy day. Yeah. Uh, a good day, in fact, to talk about pyro theology. So, Pete, the first question that we have today is, why go pyro? Uh, as opposed to all the other options that are out there in the theological landscape, yeah. uh, especially within you know progressive Christianity, you have panentheism, you have other radical forms of, of theology. What is it yeah. about pyro that interests you? Okay, so I've, I've had this question, obviously, a few times, and um, what I've been trying to do is nail down the major difference between, say, progressive Christianity um, or liberal Christianity uh, or progressive Christianity and radical theology or paro-theology. And unfortunately, I think I can do that clearly. And as soon as I do it clearly, everybody's going to go, oh, I'm definitely not going to go with parotheology. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think once it's put down, it sounds, the parotheology sounds very depressing when compared to the others. But in the course of this, I'm going to try and win some people over to the dark side. Okay, so I'll start by saying this. And I, some people have claimed that, you know, my work is very Calvinistic. There's, there's this kind of original lack original sin at the very core of the thinking and and so people in the progressive and the liberal traditions and progressive circle are like well this is just too this is just too negative but uh, my issue with calvinism is it's actually not negative enough because actually original sin never really means original sin it means there's an original blessing and then there's a fall into lack and brokenness and then there is a redemption and actually then Calvinists agree with progressives and liberals. You know, everyone agrees that there's an underlying harmony to the universe, an underlying wholeness and completeness. And there's various disagreements about 
how we, you know, uh, become whole again. And within the liberal tradition, someone like Schleimacher is important, you know, because mm -hmm. we ultimately can return to the ground, uh, you know, that this, this before subject object distinctions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But in parotheology, um, the idea is actually there is this lack that is original. To be human is to experience um, a lack of harmony. There is, in a sense, just like in evolutionary theory, there is this underlying antagonism that's part of mm -hmm. existence. And actually, the good news isn't that beneath the antagonism there is an underlying harmony, but that actually the antagonism is good news. Mm. <laughs> the, the antagonism is not the bad news that we have to overcome. The antagonism is um, a creative force. Now, it's also a destructive force. It's like fire. Yeah. Fire cooks things and it keeps you warm and it destroys things. Mm. But this antagonism, if it's robbed of its sting, is actually um, leads to a much more rich and creative form of life. So the difference I would say, you know, why go pyro and not uh, progressive is that that most of these other, I think, streams of theology, apart from being very metaphysical, that's a different story, but uh, at, at their roots, I think they, they articulate this good news of wholeness and completeness, which I think is actually bad news. <laughs> and radical theology preaches the bad news of antagonism and conflict, which is actually good news. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that claim because it sounded when you used the word evolutionary like you were making some kind of metaphysical statement about yeah. the way that reality continues forward. Yes. Could you respond to that in terms of is, is that what you mean by that or do you mean something more philosophical? Yeah, no, I, I actually think that maybe either I'm becoming more metaphysical in my old age or I'm admitting to my f metaphysics more. I can hear Tripp saying, praise Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's a very particular form of metaphysics. Right. Um, and it's, it's not, in a sense, a positive metaphysics, yeah. like uh, postulating some positive positivity. In a sense, it's a negative metaphysics, i.e. it's positing an original negativity at the core of reality. Mm. Um, and this is why, you know, this is one of the reasons why someone like John Caputo um, is very disappointed in me, because I think, you know, uh, e radical theology can be too metaphysical for his tastes. Right. You know, why, why either say that everything is beautiful and we'll lie down with harps in the next life or everything's chaos and it's like a scene from Alien and uh, right. you know why, why make that decision and a lot of me is sympathetic to that yeah. but I think even the act of saying that is in a sense a type of embrace of the antagonism of existence hmm. for example just one example um, you take predestination I mean predestination at one sense sounds like the most uh, the, a kind of a doctrinal statement where everything is already in place. But kind of it doesn't work like that. That The whole idea is, yes, everything's in place, but you don't know which you are. So, and, and what you are, in a sense, becomes manifest in your actions. So, in a sense, what, you could look at a person's life and that might help you understand whether they're damned for all eternity or whether they're saved from all eternity. But um, it doesn't change the fact that we actually still have to live in fear and trembling in the unknown. And in a sense, any system that takes seriously living in that space of the unknown, whether it's a predestination kind of doctrine or whether it's a metaphysics of um, fundamental antagonism, yeah, they're pretty much 
they 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 boil down to the same thing, and um, maybe that's what Caputo means, mm. and I, I kind of agree with that. Did you see? I think it was a week or two ago. He made a statement on Facebook about metaphysics, saying that he was swinging towards openness to that conversation. Oh, oh wow! No, Pretty I didn't fascinating. see that. that uh, I have to check that. So out. you two sound like you're on a similar journey in that way. Yeah. Well, we're in a similar journey partly because I steal so much from him. You know, it's like yeah. like we're not obviously on equal footing. He is older and wiser than me, and so if there's things that resonate between the two of us, most often it's because I've read his books and been you know, transformed by them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, join the club. So uh, speaking of Jack and speaking of radical theology, where are, I know, and I know you've talked about this before a bit on certain podcasts, but where are some differences when it comes to your specific innovation in the radical camp with Pyro? Yeah. Well, so you mentioned, yeah, what the innovation is there and also the difference with, with Jack Caputo. So um, in a sense, I think they're two, I'll, I'll deal with them separately okay. perhaps. Um, what, what is the innovation in parotheology? Um, you know, I would want to try to argue a couple of things, but honestly, I think there's only one, and it is practice. Uh, parotheology, although, you know, most people know me from when I moved to America and, like, maybe have read my books, um, actually, 10 years before I wrote any books or lived 15 years before I lived in America, I was part of a community where we were trying to live out radical theology and practice. And so, in a sense, that 10 years of, of working in practice in a community, doing what we call transformance art, that might be the innovation because there was, there's, I mean, radical theology has incredibly brilliant thinkers. Uh, in the 1960s, for example, there was incredible work being done. But one of the failures, I think, at the time was an inability to create a technology out of the theory, a liturgical technology. Right. Um, and, and even someone like Thomas Altizer tried to do it, and, and he had a vision for a type of cabaret, theological, liturgical cabaret. Um, I didn't know this until I met him uh, a few years ago when he talked about this, but that's what we actually were enacting. Mm -hmm. It was a type of liturgical uh, cabaret that reflected the theory in a form of technology. And th mm -hmm. that's still a primary interest of mine. Right. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And in what we're endeavoring to do as well up here with the Way Collective, I think we will be walking into that reality. Um, but also, you mentioned in the 60s, thinkers like Altizer, who was a good friend and colleague of one of my professors, uh, John Cobb. Oh, yes. Uh, but there was something happening in the 60s. Many people talk about the death of God. Um, at the same time that the death of God conversation was happening, there was also this uh, school of thought called theopoetics that mm -hmm. was being birthed and, and around the same time, um, really out of, of maybe different you know, university settings, but very similar. So I wanted to just shift gears a little bit to, to bring that uh, to bear on what we've been talking um, about in terms of radical theology uh, and ask, uh, you're up here for an event mm -hmm. called Pints and Parables, yep. and there's something about the parabolic that you tend to gravitate toward, obviously. Uh, but what do you think it is about the nature um, of the parabolic that opens this up in a different way um, rather than, you know, pursuing systematic theology or pursuing, you know, um, propositional doctrinal statements? What, what is it to you about the poetical parabolic voice yeah. that is attracting? And, and there's part of me wants to see, and I, you know, if we had time, we would do this now, is to, is to parse out whether actually those are two different types of discourse, the poetic and the parabolic. 
Right. Because I've actually been weird. I mean, people are freaked out by this when I say it, but I've been spending some time reading or rereading C.S. Lewis's work, uh, partly because I want to do a, or I am doing a retreat in Ireland on his right. work. But it's a radical rereading of Lewis because I think there's some interesting ideas that can be teased out of his more conservative metaphysical Christianity. Right. Um, I, I kind of want to do to C.S. Lewis what Shizek does to Chesterton. Right? Okay. That's the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the things Lewis uh, once wrote a paper on is this idea of theology as poetry. And he said, and I thought it was interesting, that if theology is a form of poetics, it's a very bad form of poetics. Because he says, I've read the great works of poetry, the great works of literature. And he says, when I compare the Bible, if I compare it as a, as a form of poetry, he says, it just doesn't come up very well. It's not very good. Um, I thought that was quite interesting. Now, then he goes on to argue it's not poetics. It's actually telling you about something to do with the nature of existence, reality, God, right. etc. I don't go with them in that direction. But um, I do think that theology is doing something very... Uh, uh, raw, like, like there are a number of thinkers over the years. I think people like Comte might have been one of them, but who thought that they could create a new religion, and sometimes it was a new religion out of literature, a new religion out of poetry. But there's something about the Bible which is so of the people and so down to earth, um, and I'm interested in that. And parables, I think, are great for this because parables are terrible literature in a sense. There's no right. character development. There's no flowery language. They, you know, they they hit you between the eyes. Um, but that's what I like about them. Um, yeah. I, I would say parables are different from mythologies. A mythology is a story that tells you why you're here, where you're going, what it's all about. And actually, I think um, fundamentalists are often treat uh, the crucifixion as a mythology because it's a story that tells us why we're here, where we're going, what it's all about. Right. For me, um, the crucifixion is what's called in philosophy the real. And the real is that which breaks apart mythology, breaks you open to new ways of thinking, cannot be domesticated by your idea of wisdom, your idea of wonders, etc. And that's what parables do. For me, parables are different from mythology because parables disrupt our understanding of who's in and who's out, who's right or who's wrong, who's good or who's bad. Right. Uh, one thing you'll know is C.S. Lewis had an argument. Was Jesus a liar, a lunatic or a lord? And he says, well, he wasn't a liar, which means he wasn't unethical. He wasn't mad, which means he wasn't unwise. So therefore, maybe he was Lord. But actually, I think a closer reading of the Bible, you have to argue that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic and Lord in the sense of like the liar is the ethical sense. Jesus comes across profoundly unethical from our perspective, always throwing out who we think is bad aren't bad, who we think are good, aren't good, always messing up our ethics. And anti-wisdom, all our wisdom traditions and what we think is, 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 is the right way to view the world. The idea that God dies, for example, is from a wisdom perspective, ridiculous. Um, and, and that's actually what makes Jesus so interesting. And parables are like that. They expose the, the chaos and craziness of the world to us in a way that's productive. Right. And so, you know, hearkening back to your metaphysics of absurd disruption, it sounds like parables are tiny snippets or even little little bombs that could be thrown to disrupt yes. and, and to reveal the absurd yes. in, in such a way that the listener isn't told something or taught something, but they are called 
Exactly. And okay. you kind of, in a sense, touch the absurd. And, and of course, yeah. you know, maybe we should define that term a little bit yeah, for people um, if, or if you're interested. Because it was Tertullian who said, basically in a power phrase, he said, I believe in the crucifixion because it is absurd. Right. And people think, of course, like everybody, everybody kind of disagrees with him. If you're... Uh, kind of secular, you'd say, well, yes, Christianity is absurd, and that's precisely a reason not to believe in it. Right. Or if you're on the other side, you're like, no, Christianity isn't absurd, and that's precisely why you should believe in right. it. But Tertullian says this weird thing where he says it is absurd, and that's why you should embrace it. Right. Um, and I think really very few theologians that I know that have really got to the heart of that, except for someone like Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. Yeah. yeah. And in a sense... We have to understand what the absurd means. At first, we think it's just like square triangles. An absurd is something just like that's impossible. Mm -hmm. But if you take someone like Albert Camus, who in a sense defined the absurd in maybe the best way, in the most precise way. In the plague, too. Poetically defined, the oh, absurd. Very good. Precise. Okay, you're getting the poetics back in there. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> Peppering it in. Peppering right. it in. Um, well, you know, Camus said, the absurd is simply the experience of living in a universe where we want certain things like pleasure, satisfaction, meaning in a universe that seems to resist giving us those things. And so the absurd is the name given to that antagonism. And that's an antagonism that we try to avoid at all costs. Um, and I think that, I mean, tonight I'll be exploring this, but we either try to avoid it by embracing religions that promise us knowledge, wholeness, completeness, satisfaction, or by, by embracing religions that offer us a way to escape desire by getting rid of it and, you know, just simply accepting the nothingness of existence. And I think both of those are attempts to avoid the absurd. But what I think is interesting about Christianity is I think it helps us actually enter into and embrace the absurd. And the crucifixion for me is the ultimate kind of um, the ultimate symbol of the absurd. Mm. But parables also connect with that. They're always disrupting our meaning systems and, and inviting us to become comfortable in our unraveling. In fact, just one thing about that is I love the, the play between unraveling and raveling. Um, you know, we think we're unraveling when we start to question our existence, question our politics, our culture, um, and we think we have to stop the unraveling. But the real challenge for me with parotheology is to turn unraveling into raveling. And now raveling means exactly the same as unraveling, but it doesn't have the negative unword. So you're not unraveling, you're raveling. Enjoy your raveling. You know, embrace it, revel in it. It's wonderful. You're raveling. You're not unraveling. So one of the questions that we had sent in from a listener was, Pete, could give us a play-by-play -play on how to actually embrace the absurd? Yeah. Because as those of us who have gone through that disruption know, um, you know, on a visceral level, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel like raveling. It feels mm -hmm. like something is unraveling. It feels like something is being taken away. It feels like death, loss, grief. So... But, but at the same time, you also know that that has a catalytic effect and it leads us to new places and usually more expansive places if one doesn't shy away. Yes. So, so what is it about, you know, the, the paradox, if you will, of embracing the absurd uh, that actually opens us up and how do we do it well? Yeah. Um, you know, that's why I'm interested in practice, coming back to that idea of the innovation, if there's any, of power theology. Um, th this is not an intellectual journey. 
I think the intellectual can get us a certain way, but we all know that we can accept something intellectually but not accept it uh, kind of in our unconscious. This is why I think we need communities and, and rituals and practices that help us into that journey. There's the theory side of it, but if we're getting beyond the theory into, you know, this person's asking, well, how do you actually do it? I think, first of all, you know, it's always already happening. Um, a family member of mine said to me, Pete, we were talking about depression, and she was like, you know, I'm not depressed. I don't get depressed. You know, depression is for people who think. Depression is for people who read too much, you know. I don't get depressed. And, and she said that because her idea was that depression... Um, is something you feel. It's something subjective. But what I was saying to her was, well, actually, what if depression is not subjective? It's objective. In other words, precisely depression is not seen in your inner experience. It actually comes out in your objective practices. Because you actually, you try to avoid your depression. You push it down. You try to pretend everything's great. So subjectively, you don't know you're depressed. But it comes out in back pain, in migraines, in a tapping finger, or in an outburst of anger. And so what if the unraveling is already happening? And the truth of that is seen in symptoms. Then what you need is a community or a place where you can come to know what's happening, where it's accepted, which is the term grace. Grace is where you're accepted. You are, you're going through all of that. You can actually admit it to me and you can admit it to yourself mm -hmm. and there'll be no judgment. Mm -hmm. And in an environment like that, just coming to terms and seeing the unraveling that is going on can in and of itself be liberating, can turn unraveling to raveling. Now, there's more to it than that, but we can't cover everything here. So right. the first step I would say is finding a community that, that of grace that in a sense allows you to admit to what's going on. One, one very concrete example. Within a conservative church, perhaps people are reading apologetics all the time, you know, da, da, da. And that's often a symbol of doubt, not of certainty. If you were certain, you wouldn't have to read all this apologetics, right? right? So often the unraveling and the struggle is there, doubt, unknowing, which is like obviously an antagonism, a lack of knowledge. It's already there, but you're in a community where you think, if I admit that to myself or to the people around me, that'll be a problem. But if you can find a community that says, actually, the, the doubt and the unknowing is okay, and in fact, not even okay, can actually be really productive, just like in science, um, then, it doesn't help, it doesn't make you doubt, it simply, um, it simply allows you to admit to the doubt that's already going on. Right. Which, you know, uh, is in part why we are setting up a community up here that is a community of shared practices and values rather yeah. than beliefs. Uh, because I think when you talked about the those more conservative settings where people are reading apologetics all the time. Well, the funny thing is they're not apologetic about it. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but, but the reality is we do need these new spaces today. And my experience has been that in many ways, those are not the spaces that we have in our churches. And they're not the spaces that we have in our religious communities. So we either need to innovate in the way that we do um, some some sort of religious community, or we have to probably find them outside of the doors of the church. Oh yes, uh, and that's why AA, uh, yeah. as you've you've spoken before, has been such an influential movement. Uh, but it but, can be your your poker game with your friends on a Thursday night, right. your coffee with your friend on a Tuesday morning. It can be, but I think the privileged spaces are things like comedy, music, 
art. And actually for me, liturgy is privileged because it uses all of those things. Um, to create a space once a week where, you know, you can walk into this. But there has to be a big change. This is not the evangelical idea that doubt is something that is okay, that you can do that to your Christianity, that you can, you know, doubt and ask questions about your faith. This is the idea that your faith is the doubting and the antagonism itself. Hmm. So in other words, it's not that you hold your Christianity in front of you and then you question it. The very act of questioning existence is Christianity. That's why, you know, people say to me, well, should I bring my kids up, say, in Christianity, tell them the stories of the Bible, knowing that they're probably going to have to deconstruct all of that in the future? And I understand that question. But what if Christianity is the deconstruction itself? So, for example, when you read a story about the Good Samaritan, it's not about Samaritans. It's about taking a particular stance in the world and that can be applied you know to school it can be applied to work it can be applied to politics and it's actually teaching us to deconstruct the moral frameworks that we naturally put in place so that so for me that's that's the move the move is not oh let's have a christianity we can question but actually let's discover what what radical theology says that that christianity is an expression of radical unknowing the embrace of the absurd Right. And speaking of moral grounding and, and the way in which that, uh, you know, disruptive, absurd uh, reality can can be enacted. Uh, one of the questions another listener sent in was, uh, you know, when it comes to the or when does the ethical grounding come within pyrotheology? Yes. And is that even a nonsensical question to ask? Because pyrotheology, uh, you know, is it, he said is derivative of like deconstruction um, or I think he means radical theology. But uh, is it more of a haunting in that way, or how does it function, um, you know, to create some kind of moral or ethical yeah. reality? I mean, in some ways, and I, you know, I got this from Lacan as well. Like, you know, for Lacan, um, the, the first question to ask is not, you know, you know, what is, you know, how, how can I be ethical? But, but what does it mean to get to a point where you can be ethical uh, and, and likewise unethical? And, uh, you know, I, I feel this way about parotheology is parotheology is less about grinding what you should and shouldn't do, but getting you to a place where you can be ethical or unethical. And what I mean by that is, you know, imagine someone puts a gun to your head and tells you to do something like give money to the poor or whatever, or phone your mum and ask how she is. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing we probably all agree on is you phoning your mum and saying, how are you doing? is not an ethical act. Right. Because you've got right. a gun to your head. That, in a sense, to become ethical and hence also to become unethical is to be able to choose whether to phone your mum or not without some sort of reward or punishment being involved. So with parotheology, embracing the absurd, in a sense, is about trying to bring people to a point where they do not act either by blaming or affirming some big other outside of their ethical act, but rather in fear and trembling, embrace their acts and take responsibility for their acts. Mm-hmm. Now, you could argue at one point, I want to say, and then there you go. So now you can be ethical or unethical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us, we go to, you know, in, in LA, people don't believe in, you know, uh, what do you call them, clairvoyance or uh, 
what do you call Psychics. Psychics, that's exactly yeah. the term. But they're in every corner and people go to them because, you know, we don't want to take responsibility for whether we should break up with Bobby or not. You know, we want someone to <laughs> yeah. tell us, right? We, we, we want to, and you see this in so many speeches, uh, you know, like... Uh, you know, a, a kind of unethical speeches as well, where you're not killing people yourself. You know, you're obeying a higher order. You know, you're you're doing this for your country. You're doing this for God. You're doing this for uh, the you know the historical necessity. Right? There are all ways to take away your moral responsibility. So, in a sense, most of us are not ethical or unethical. We do things that are good and bad. But for me, I'm going like, how do we raise ourselves to that level? And the, the parotheological space is, a, is, is part of it is about bringing you to that place. Which, But there is a second dimension I'd like to add, which is I think when you do that, the tendency will be towards um, uh, more healthy action and better action. So the, the twin rules of church for me are one, to sensitize us to the subjectivity of the other. So in the, the in this one-hour space, we are sensitized to the, the subjectivity of the other. And two, we are, we experience the, the fear and trembling of not knowing what we should do in response to that subjectivity. So we have to act not knowing what we should do. And you need both of those simultaneously um, in order, I think, to embrace the ethics of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, that I think that is one of the, the things that is most lacking from a lot of our communities is, is the deep listening and the deep connection component of, of experiencing another's subjectivity in such a way that you have a relatedness yeah. or even a possibility of intimacy in any way. Yes. And, you know, in, in most of the culture that I've seen uh, in churches today, we are still tethered to a liturgy that does not facilitate that very well. Yeah. Although it was well-intended and, and served certain purposes uh, in the past, it it is not one usually, aside from passing the peace, you know, mm-hmm. that, that helps you turn toward the person you're sitting next to. Uh, anyways, I'm just yeah. trying to and illustrate it, that. And, and it yeah. might have, as you said, like, it's not that it never worked. It's, it, like, you can have rituals that work for a right. time, and the problem is just over time, one has to either reimagine them or reinvigorate them. They become worn out. So it's, it's not even saying that, oh, yeah, they, they never worked. It's just saying some of these really powerful rituals that did work to sensitize us to the other, to help us take responsibility, you know, don't necessarily work in a in a new time in a different era right so we need evolved practices yeah um, I, I, and in a sense it's a, it's what Kierkegaard calls repetition so in some respects it's it's repeating the past so you're not moving beyond it you're repeating the past but you repeat it in a different context so even though you're repeating it it looks a bit different like the greatest artists like often new artistic movements grow not from innovating but from repeating the masters but repeating them with a slight difference so so you kind of like you're repeating cubism but as you repeat it a different artist that goes through different blood it goes through different flesh it goes through different colors and so something new gradually emerges so there is a form of repetition that creates innovation right and you know rob always says that the reorganization of old information is new information. Ah, it's that same, that yes. same way that, that uh, it, it's important for us to take, and, and I love how you were talking about the role that art and music and liturgy actually plays in this formational aspect because 
because those are templates, if you will. Those are those are cubisms, if you will, yeah. that we will continue in. But we have to bring them, you know, up. We have to innovate in them. We have to draw new life out of them yeah. in a new time. And mm-hmm. and I know you were saying you were talking about the way a new artist could inhabit that, but also our culture around us is uh, is changing rapidly as well. Yeah. And so it's important for us to have you know, forms that are that are up to date. Yeah. And and the thing the reason why then liturgy for me has a privileged space is because although artists and musicians and all of that can do this, I am a big believer in, you know, when th- in therapy, for example, that you go somewhere once, twice or three times a week to create this space and that sometimes it's crap. Like you don't do that with concerts. You don't go to a concert every week. And you only go if it's going to be good. Whereas if you have a liturgical structure, you kind of, you go, you try and go every week and you know it's going to be crap sometimes. And that's okay. And and you're, you're carving out a desert in the oasis of your life, a, a quiet, dry space in the craziness and the noise of existence. And you can do that in various places. I say you can have your poker night once a month or your coffee once a week with a friend. So it's not the only place at all. But I like the fact that the church has this weird technology that that happens once a week, and and actually our culture kind of it kind of goes with it. Yeah, yeah. that's that yeah. that that fascinates me, and that's what I want to inhabit with radical. I want to inhabit that weekly space with, um, you know, what what I call transformance art. Right, and that was a space that you used to inhabit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, I would like to take just a little biographical turn here for a moment just to have you comment on something I heard you say a few years ago at Subverting the Norm, which was basically that much of your work was you reinterpreting your own conversion moment and then your subsequent involvement in Christianity. Do you still find that that's the case for you? Or how do you think of that journey uh, in that way now? Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, for me, Christianity at its core is... uh, articulating a different mode of being in the world. And when I was 17, you know, I experienced, you know, what's called conversion. And with that came a lot of other things, um, you know, a lot of beliefs, a lot of ideas, uh, involvement in church, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of that, I think, is deconstructible. Everything that's constructible is deconstructible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the undeconstructible, to use Derrida's language, um, was the event itself. And in many ways, my life has been around trying to be faithful to that event and to subtract as much as possible from it and to, you know, see what what is what what happened, what occurred, um, how it's connected to Christianity as as a tradition and as, with a history and then how to create liturgical practices that help to invite that experience. So, so yeah, the, what happened to me at 17 continues to be the, uh, the northern star that mm. directs my life. Mm. Mm. Wow. Um, so in that journey, you know, even reflected in your books is this movement from a more apophatic expression in, you know, like how not to speak of God. Uh, and then you kind of went into more, you know, a radical or absurd mode, but also have really engaged a lot with, you know, psychoanalysis, of, yes. especially in the Lacanian form. So has that, how have you seen yourself grow or change as, as you've emerged from that 17 year old self and to who you are today? And how, yeah. how have you been writing about that? Yeah. I, I, I'm reminded you know, of Kierkegaard when he said life is lived forwards and understood backwards, mm-hmm. um, that in many respects, you know, it, it would be very hard, it would have been impossible for me 
to see the move from you know a, a very positivistic form of theology a kind of like cataphatic let's call it that to the apophatic with my first book yep. through to kind of the materialist kind of like perspective of my later work um, which is you know kind of like expressing itself in the absurd mm -hmm. you know I could not have predicted that but when I look back it kind of makes sense to me mm -hmm. now there is a lot of narrative covers over a lot of cracks yep. and sometimes we, you know, we make sense of things that you know you can't make sense of but each of those turns feel like a turn inward a turn deeper mm. so for me like the truth of um the, the experience of you know my evangelical brief brief flurry with evangelicalism was there was like this deep truth and beauty there mm -hmm. um, and I loved the language the militancy the strength of it you know still admire so much of that and then that drew me into then um, exploring um, the the apophatic Mm -hmm. which then kind of like the truth of the apophatic for me, the negative was actually material, that Christianity is, a, is, is an embrace of, of material life of the world, a care for the world, rather than a, a, a removal of ourselves from the world. Um, an existential turn. Yes. So really my main, and I was always, to be honest, like I was always very influenced by the 19th century thinkers. I was profoundly influenced whenever I encountered as an undergrad, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, and I, I, I encountered their critiques. Uh, I find them fascinating. In fact, my PhD, in a sense, is a theological response, taking them seriously. And this is where I'm closer to Karl Barth than liberals. You know, uh -huh. I like, you know, if I if I had to choose between, you know, Karl Barth and Schleimacher, uh, yeah, I might I might have to go Barty and you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, only in the sense of for me, Barth well, Barth's a di a dialectic theologian. Right. So I respect that. And Barth's response to liberalism in a sense is, you know, you ultimately get a God of your own projection. You get a God who is the ideals of the society, the positive kind of thing, the beautiful soul, you know, the, what we project out, the most beautiful parts of ourselves. Whatever. Um, and, you know, Bart's whole idea is, well, God is not a yes, but a no. God is not a projection. In, in John Caputo's terms, God is not a projection. God is a projectile. And so Bart has this notion that if God is anything, God is a projectile. Um, God is a no to all of our religious, political, and cultural structures. Um, and I think his intuition there was was really was really powerful. That's mm -hmm. the Bart that I like. Right. But that's the only part of Bart that yeah, I yeah. He might have meant that a little more onto theologically than yes, you probably yes. did. But. but his critique, in fact, in like in church dogmatics, his critique of religion is is brilliant. Um, uh, you know, even his play, because his critique of religion is as strong as the critiques of religion you'll get in the religious studies department, all the great critiques. His is as strong as all of them. And then he does this clever play where he says kind of God makes a religion true, you know, which is which in itself is a clever move. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, yeah, he, he does some interesting stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but yes, but, but you know, ultimately it's, I mean, I agree with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It seems like fight a stick. It seems like you have to, he enters into this, as you say, onto theological kind of like frame, which I can't bite. Right, right. Well, you know, along that theme, I, I think that as I heard you at the outset here today talk a little bit about a metaphysics of the absurd, mm -hmm. that, that disruptive evolutionary um, event that continues the, to, 
to propel the uh, cosmos forward in a creative act. Yes. It sounds a lot to me like process metaphysics. So, yeah. I mean, I, and, and uh, you know, I need to read some more process. Yeah, I'm actually yeah, trained yeah. In, th- in philosophy, and we never really did Whitehead. It didn't really come up much. But you, like sinners. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. So, so Whitehead's still not studied that much, weirdly, in, in a lot of the no, philosophy very terms, true. yeah. But, but yeah, because evolution is an interesting thing. Evolution is repetition. Because yeah. what evolution does, it keeps repeating what already was. It keeps repeating, uh-huh. but it's also forward-moving. Yep. In that repetition, there is innovation. And, yeah, that's very process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely interesting connections there. Absolutely. Um and I, I, I guess um, it's non-teleological. I mean, evolution, you don't have to embrace some sort of eschatological, teleological endpoint, some omega point that all of this is drawing towards. Right. But I always get the feeling when I talk to process people that there is some sort of like ultimate, you know, yeah. omega point to call, to use Teilhard de Chardin, you know? Yeah, right. Um, and that, so I sometimes I sometimes get the intuition that the, the theologians, some theologians have kind of like, uh, made Whitehead into a type of, you know, t- t- taking the sting out of his tail, maybe by sure. by creating this kind of more substantive notion of God. But I don't know enough to know yeah. if that's the case or not. Yeah. Well, I wanted to. I mean, just for a moment, draw a point of connection because okay. uh, I, I think Whitehead, on the whole, obviously has a stronger ontology than you would be comfortable with, most likely. However, uh, his you know his vision of tragic beauty we've spoken about before briefly, but this idea that uh, the universe is a perpetually perishing system. So there's, but also at the same time, is a creative advance into novelty. So, so for Whitehead, the answer about or or the 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 teleology of heading towards some kind of omega point probably wouldn't interest him that much. He actually wrote an essay later in his career because somebody asked him to address the topic of, uh, I think it was either eternity or eternal life. I can't remember right now. So he addresses it a little and he has particular convictions about, um, you know, permanence, uh, you know, and selfhood and the way in which the reality of God might be the harmonizing effect, uh, that, that does, you know, receive uh, reality into permanence. But mm. that's that's neither here nor there. But the point is, I, I was curious about the way you were talking about the absurd as a disruptive event sounds a lot like what I, what I hear him talk about uh, in his vision of tragic beauty, that beauty is always realized in an event and then it perishes as soon as it is, is actualized. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that comes more from his value theory than it does his, his metaphysics uh, in a sense, but they're, they're definitely related. So um, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. there could be like some really interesting connections there. Um, as I say, like maybe um, it's like in the same way that a lot of philosophers have what we call the headless Hegel, which is like a Hegel without the grand absolute and the closure of the universe. Um, you know, if, if process, I don't know if, I don't think it applies to Whitehead, but but other process thinkers or thinkers influenced by process, it, if I could cut the head off all of that ultimate end point stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then there could be a lot of connections. Because I'm all for, I like Schopenhauer. I was listening to Schopenhauer on the way up here, actually. Mm. Um, and, you know, he has a tragic view of life. But in a sense, um, he, he, he says, like, but the opposite, if, if life was wonderful and all brilliant, he says it would be terrible. He says that would, we'd have more wars, you know, mm-hmm. out of sheer boredom of life, that there's something actually beautiful about this, this ongoing struggle of existence. And if you can embrace the beauty of that, 
then you know that is a form of salvation, a salvation from salvation. Right. So, so in your mind, then, if you were to address this post-Christendom world with some good news, or maybe some absurdly good news, yeah. what what would you how, what would your gospel sound like? Yeah. Well, you know, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. You know, the good news for like L.A., for example, I you know where I live, the good news is um, life is crap, and you don't have the answers. Right. That's my altar call. I'll have just as I am playing and people come ah. to the front. But here, here's the difficulty. See, if you're selling, like, of course, the joke is no one's going to come to the front, right? If you're going to sell something, if you're going to sell certainty and satisfaction, you can be direct about it because it appeals to something. It appeals to what we want. Um, but in the words of a, a theorist I like, Todd McGowan, it doesn't give us what we need. Uh, we something like that, like Joel Osteen, promises what we want, which is wholeness, satisfaction, purpose. Mm-hmm. But it gives us what we need, which is need, which is lack. Because actually what we want, what's the real enjoyment of life is struggle, right? That's what we don't know it. In fact, we think we want to get rid of that, but that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. But we experience it in a, in a way that's difficult and painful. And if I can just use an example of, in a relationship, you know, these happen all the time, but let's say Jack and Jill have are married for 10 years. And then Jack uh, has an affair with this other girl called her Snow White. And w- when we see this happening, we think, oh, Jack and Jill are going to break up. Jack and Jill haven't felt desire for each other for, for five years. There's no libidinal desire. They just <laughs> live in the same house. So that's it. It's going to be over. And Jack really wants to be with Snow White, always saying, oh, if only, if only I could be with you, if only I wasn't married, right? But the very moment that now the whole affair's found out, Jack has to move out, Jill doesn't want to see him again, and Jack can be with Snow White. If we were an alien from outer space, we'd be like, oh, that's over. But of course, most of the time it's not. And in, this is a true example of some friends of mine. Within a week, Jack and Jill are sleeping together. They're having sex. They're planning weekends away. Right. Jack doesn't want to be with Snow White. Because what... What I mean, in a nutshell, what we think we want is someone to make us whole and complete. Mm-hmm. But actually, that leads to boredom, the boredom of just the marriage, whatever. What we want is desire itself. And that's that's why people often have affairs. And that's why the failure of the affair keeps you in it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a problem with it. It damages everybody. So we'd have to deconstruct how do you do this in a healthy way. But we we think we want wholeness, satisfaction, completeness, full knowledge. But actually, what we need is the lack of all those things, right? But we get them in a way we don't like. So when you're selling wholeness, satisfaction, completion, you can say it directly. But when you're you're offering people lack, uh, then you have to do it indirectly. You do it through music and art. You go to a comedian who talks about death. You laugh about it, and then you realize your own finitude, and you feel wonderful. But you wouldn't have gone to the comedian if you thought, we're going to spend an hour talking about how I'm going to die. Well, I'm not going to spend my money doing that. Musicians as well, like good musicians, you go, you know, to Nick Cave because you want to just like, get away and listen to music. But actually, he gets you to think about the difficult and things of life. So right. that's why it's the joke of, you know, the good, the good news of life is crap and you don't have the answers. It's a joke because in really that's what I am selling, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, but that's what because we know it's true. That's the thing. Most of right. us know it's true. That's why in L.A. when I laugh about, I make jokes about the tyranny of happiness. People understand it. The tyranny of having to be whole and complete or pretend you are or pursue that is horrific. The freedom from the pursuit of happiness. Oh, that's that's good news. But we have to be very creative in in exploring that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes me think of 
you know, you have, a, I think, a little segment in your book, Insurrection, that talks about the pastor be- believing on behalf of the congregation mm-hmm. and that idea that uh, I even heard you say one time, I think, that it's easier to sell that form of good news because it's a hit for people yeah. in such a way that keeps them coming back, needing it again and again and again. Yes. But so in a sense, is what you're prescribing, is that something that you need to come back for? Or is it something that you need to keep reminding yourself via liturgy? Or in what way do you see, how can yeah. we stay in the disruption in that way? I, I have a tendency to think that it frees you from the liturgical structure. So like the question, and this is why I like Todd McGowan's work, because the question some people ask today, which I think is the wrong question, is you know, like people think that, it, oh, if we just expose an oppressive political system or an oppressive religious system, people will be freed. So there was this old idea that education is the answer. Educate, educate, educate. But I think any of us who, you know, if you read psychoanalysis, seen the world, you go like, well, it doesn't work like this. So I could go to someone and go, here's a prosperity church that promises you'll be rich if you do certain things, right? But here's the percentage of people who it works for over 10 years. And then here's the percentage of people not involved in a prosperity church. And, you know, it's, it look, it's the same percentage, et cetera, et cetera. And you go like, oh, if I just show this data, the person's going to go, oh, I'm going to stop going to the prosperity church. Of course, it doesn't work, right? The question is, why do we continue to give ourselves over to oppressive systems? Right. And that, 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 that's a psychoanalytic question because that's what the psychoanalyst asks in the therapy. Someone knows they're in a system that's destructive to them, always having affairs or always going out with people who hurt them. And they want to know why do they continue to give themselves over to oppressive systems. And one of the answers in, in a nutshell is that the reason why people embrace someone like Joel Osteen is precisely because it doesn't work, right? That's the reason. It's precisely because of Like if it did work, you would realize it doesn't work. So if, if you got rich off that, all you would do is realize that it didn't get rid of your existential poverty, right? The only, right. The, the success of getting to the, of getting the prosperity stuff is actually seeing its failure. But the failure of the system is what breeds its success mm. because we never get there. We think, oh, if only I pray a bit more, if only I do this, if I, only I do that. So you keep coming back every week, every week, every week. It's the very failure of the system which is its, its ultimate success. Mm. And if you're one of the few people who succeed in the system, that can open up its very failure. Mm. That's why a lot of people who follow my work are evangelicals who did everything. Not the evangelicals who didn't do it, but the ones who were like, were stupid enough to burn their record collections, mm-hmm. were stupid enough to mm-hmm. become an elder, to get into the heart, because yeah. they were thinking, if I get into the heart, that's where the action is. Right. But they got there and it, they realized the failure of the system. Whereas if you don't do that, you've always got the fantasy that if you did read the whole Bible fast enough, pray enough, do all the things you're told, then it would work. And it's the fantasy that keeps you going right. and it gives you what you need, which is lack. But for me, and this is what, the, the, the parotheology gives you what you need in a way that you want. So, so Joel Osteen gives you what you, promises what you want, which is satisfaction, but gives you what you need, which is lack, but gives you what you need in a way that you don't like, Right. Parotheology says we will give you what you need, which is lack, but in a way that you want. In other words, you will find satisfaction in your dissatisfaction. Right. In in the underlying theme that I've been thinking as you have been speaking is freedom. I mean, what you're really talking about, in a sense, is a liberation from the pursuit of happiness. Yes. Yes. Uh, that is good news. That is good news, and it's dialectic. So it's not actually, I you know. 
in a nutshell, I, I reject both religions, what I call of hedonism, which is religions that will promise satisfaction, and religions of nihilism. And by the way, when I talk about religions, there are sacred and secular forms of both, right? right? right. Um, the secret is a secular form of hedonistic religion. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the embrace of brokenness and lack is not the embrace of nihilism. It's the overcoming of nihilism because the argument in a nutshell is when you actually make peace with the difficulties of existence, you actually in, can enjoy, the. Uh, you can be satisfied in your dissatisfaction, you can enjoy the lack. It can actually be, I mean, science is a very mundane example. A scientist is driven by truth, but they never get to it. They, 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 a good scientist is satisfied by their dissatisfaction. They enjoy it. That's why they go to work. Not, they are trying to get somewhere, but also they acknowledge, but we'll never get there. But they enjoy the lack of getting to where they're going. Right. So that, that, that's, a, that's a scientific version of what we're doing in the theology of parotheology. It's wonderful. Um, so we're going to wrap up here in just a few, but and I know this probably won't come out for a month or two. But what can we keep our eyes out for? Uh, what are you up to? What what kind of work are you doing in the world these days? Yeah. So a lot of I mean I'm really interested in creating these spaces in festival form. So I'm doing two at the moment two like retreats or festivals um, in Ireland that are attempts to live this stuff out. So I'm doing that. I'm. I'm concentrating a lot on, on speaking as well, but I do have a book in the works. Um, okay. It's been slow, uh, but it is mostly written and it's on the absurd. Oh, I also have a movie that I'm getting made. That's it's right. a short um, and uh, that's exciting. And also a comic book called Enduring Love set in this place called the Lonely Forest. And it's, uh, it's called Enduring Love because love is so difficult to endure. And it's going to explore um, the, the conflicts of desire uh, in a in a in a fairy tale setting, so I'm interested in looking at these in various genres. I want to write another book of theology, a comic book, a movie, and then just do do the the festivals and the and the public speaking. Why not just write a, a musical album and call it a day? You know what I mean? You That's right. All your a musical, a musical is the next thing <laughs> yeah. that comes along. Yeah, like a Gregorian chant or something. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, musicals are in the sense, by definition, the medium. That's the, it would be very hard to do it because during the Great Depression, that's when musicals became huge mm-hmm. because musicals were a way to avoid your suffering and brokenness because mm-hmm. they're also like amazing and miraculous. Yeah. So, so it, it, the real challenge is how do you make a musical that brings you into the heart of the difficulties of existence? Right. So, okay. <laughs> well, friends, uh, thank you for listening. My hope is that as you have heard this conversation and listened to Pete talk a bit, that you are comforted uh, in your unraveling and your disruption, uh, that as you experience the antagonism of the real, that you are drawn into a deeper, more expansive place. And thanks for being with us, Pete. Appreciate it. Amen. Amen to that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TD Burnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsor's ARC at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.